If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. What I was really keen to do was try and fold everything all in together. So you, one minute you're in the Atlantic, the next minute you're in North Africa, the next minute you're in, you know, outside Moscow or whatever it might be. And, and you, you, you show how all things kind of fit together and how one campaign and one theatre is affecting another. That was James Holland talking about the Second World War. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our fourth podcast of June 2017. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Our interview this week is with the military historian, author and broadcaster, James Holland. James is currently writing a multi-volume history of the Second World War, entitled The War in the West. And the second book in the series, focusing on the years 1941-43, to has just been published. Putting the questions to James for us, 
was the historian and author John Buckley, and the location for the interview was London's Imperial War Museum. Here's how they got on. Second of three volumes, ambitious project. Why have you done it in the way that you have? Uh, it is ambitious, John, and um, um, I'm slightly um, <laughs> regretting it in some ways. I mean, it's it's a it's a massive, massive undertaking. I suppose the main reason for doing it, it was because I had a sort of Damascene moment some years ago, and, and actually it was when I was doing a series of novels, mm-hmm. and I suddenly realised I didn't know enough about the minutiae of war. I didn't understand how soldiers interacted, how they operated, the kit they were using, weapons they were using what was the difference between a standing patrol and a fighting patrol, all those sort of things. And one of the first things I did was go to see Lieutenant Colonel retired John Starling at the Small Arms Unit at Shrivenham, Staff yeah. College. And I was passing an MG42, and I think I'd, I think I'd just read a, um, uh, a book in which the line said, the MG42 was, of course, the preeminent small arms weapon of the Second yeah. World War. <laughs> and so I sort of relayed this to him. And he just turned on me and went, says who? Says who? And then in the next five minutes, brilliantly deconstructed why the MG42 wasn't mm-hmm. quite so preeminent as everyone thinks it was. Mm-hmm. And it was an absolute enlightening moment for me. Mm-hmm. And I realised that there was this, this operational level of war. If you think of war as being on three levels, strategic, operational, tactical, the narrative of the Second World War other than, you know, in the mass market, in films, in documentaries, in mass market books, Mm -hmm. is almost entirely, over the last 50 years, concentrated on the strategic and the tactical, Mm -hmm. i.e. high-level stuff, what Monty's thinking, what Patton's thinking, Eisenhower, Churchill, Roosevelt, Hitler, etc. And PFC, Schultz and his foxhole, Mm -hmm. outside San Lowe, or whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. That operational level has just been removed entirely from the narrative and actually, when you reinsert that, a very, very different picture emerges. So I just got fed up of reading what I now call the declinist view, i.e. that sort of, you know, Britain was rubbish, you know, America was just sort of lucky having a huge um, arsenal um, and the Germans were brilliant, but just, you know, led by a madman and that's why they lost and they mm-hmm. kind of beat their head against the mm-hmm. Eastern Front. And I kind of think all that is just wrong. And so I felt compelled to kind of, you know, there's no point whinging about it, do something about it, write about it in a kind of what I hope is a mass market way. Mm. Trouble is, Second World War, as you well know, is a massive subject. Mm -hmm. And you can't do it in one book. And you certainly can't do it in two, as I discovered. That was my original intention. And so it's ended up being in three. And they're still pretty hefty. You put a lot of emphasis on logistics and supply and the organisational side of things. How do you make that appealing? Because the reason why people haven't written about it, in part, is because it's actually difficult to make it entertaining or gripping and so on. Well, the way I always do my books is I have my cast list of characters um, and you, you follow them through their experiences, in this case, throughout three volumes of the war. I mean, mm-hmm. some of them obviously don't make it all the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them come and go. Some of them do go through the whole six years. Um, I, I suppose the way to do it is, is to tell the logistic story through key personalities again. So, again, you're bringing it back to human drama. And, frankly, when you're talking about, I don't know, the sort of uh, um, the development of the United States as the arsenal of democracy, for example, that is just full of the most incredible stories, mm-hmm. twists and turns, more labour strikes in 1941 than any other year in American history. For example, mm-hmm. um, you know, Bill Nudson, uh, um, Henry Kaiser, uh, um, Nelson and people like this, you know, Morgenthau, you know, these are really, really interesting, colourful characters, very different characters. And 
I don't think it's that hard to kind of bring them to life and bring their problems and, and conundrums and challenges that are mm-hmm. facing them. I mean, you know, everyone always assumes that America just emerged fully formed as the arsenal of democracy. Mm-hmm. No, not a bit of it. You know, they they had the potential. Mm-hmm. Whether that potential was ever going to be realised was a quite different kettle of fish. Because mm-hmm. there is this perception that America enters the war uh, in December 1940, and that's it. It's game yeah. over, the Germans have lost, and that's it. It's just a matter of clearing up. What comes across very clearly is that that's not the case. Um, uh, capturing that element, yes, and so how America transforms itself and how Britain is already going through that process, uh, still producing more and organising for the long term, so in the way that the Germans haven't, comes across very effectively, I think, from what's in the book. So, Well, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I, I, I really, really strongly believe in all the research I've done that Britain and America absolutely made the most of the resources they had and the, and the potential they had. And both of them adopted a policy of steel, not flesh, you know, trying to minimise the number of amount of manpower you actually have Mm. at the coal face of war, at the front line. Mm. And broadly speaking, they were pretty successful at that by 1940s standards. You know, you compare that to the Germans, which are kind of very foot heavy, Mm. um, and the Soviet Union even more so. Mm. Um, And ditto the Japanese and even the Chinese. I mean, compared to them... Britain and America have very, very small standing armies compared to Germans and, and the Soviet Union. Stuff. And, and, you know, I would argue that's just being efficient and sensible rather than and making the most of what they've got. Whereas what you see with the Germans is they're constantly not making the most of their very already meagre resources. Mm. And they just make themselves the, the situation worse by kind of spending money and focusing on things that they shouldn't be focusing on or, or perhaps might not be, mm. be prioritising in a different mm. way, I suppose. Mm. Mm. I think there's a big contrast between the way the, the Allies, the Western Allies, approach the war and how Germany approaches because of this idea that the Germans are cutting edge in terms of their tactical stuff and thinking and, you know, loosely called Blitzkrieg, or they quite you know, emphasise that it's not quite like that. Um, but what's interesting is that what comes out is that Germany's fighting a very old-fashioned kind of war, whereas the British and the Americans are fighting a more modern war, which is technologically based, as you say, keeping casualties down, and that's something which kind of begins in that era and carries on post-Second World War, their approach to how you fight, uh, compared with, say, the Germans and the Soviets. Yeah, I think that is, I think that is surprising, because you do think that the, the perception is that the Germans are at the cutting edge of all kind of military advances, and they're just not. I mean, you've only got to look at the Germans in 1939-1941. You know, old-fashioned 19th-century tunics, jackboots, mm-hmm. loss of leather, mm-hmm. um, you know, which you know, any sensible army would have long since got rid of, because mm-hmm. it's pointless, it's expensive, and it rots when it gets wet and goes brittle and all those sort of things. And, I mean, what's the point of having a jackboot when you can have an ankle boot? Mm-hmm. It makes no sense whatsoever. Apart from it, makes you look sartorially good. And, what, mm-hmm. of course, what the Nazis are doing in the 1930s is it's a nod to their perceived military prowess of the 19th century and, and beyond, mm. um, but with their new Nazi slant. And sure. it's kind of saying, come on in, the water's warm, mm. regain your German pride, put your chest out, look the part, get the throw line. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's fine if you're going to win in six weeks. You can afford to have expensive leather boots and, and you know, long greatcoats and all the rest of it. But if the war goes on for six years, you can't. And, I mean, you know, one of the most devastating documents I've discovered in my research was at the, the German military archives in Freiburg and it was a memo that was signed by Hitler but written by George Thomas who was then as you know the, the head of the uh, economic department of the general staff and it said we have to stop making such complete and economic uh, and aesthetic weapons we've got to stop making such complete and aesthetic weapons this is written on the 3rd of December 1941 so four days before America, you know Pearl Harbor just as everything's going pear-shaped on the eastern front opposite you know in front of Moscow and it's sort of 
yes, you absolutely do need to stop making such complete anaesthetic weapons. But it's also acknowledgement that they have been quite consciously up until that point. Mm. I mean, the MG34, I mean, I've got one in my study, as you do. <laughs> uh, and it comes with a spare barrel, and that's got nine inspection stamps on it, mm. each one of which is just completely pointless and a waste of time. Mm. And it also comes with a little box of goodies. Mm. Um, There's a little oiler with just an amazingly delicate little chain that links mm. the main cap of the oil oiler with the lid in case you kind of lose it. And, <laughs> and, it's, and of course, the box it comes in, is that the, all the tools come in, is made of wood and leather. Mm. I mean, it's just so over the top and ridiculous. Mm. Of course, it has massive implications which you bring out in terms of supply lines, logistic networks and so on, the, the huge amount of kit that the Germans have to deploy because they just hoover at whatever they can from all over Europe in order to shove it into, say, the, the war on the Eastern Front. And they're gathering all this material up, but then they've got to keep it moving, keep it going. So you're increasing massively the pressures on your transport network, your supply lines and so on, and the, you've got a multiplicity of different kinds of kit and equipment. It's just a bafflingly uh, foolish way to run a war. Absolutely. And, and this is, I mean, you know, and also this sort of the fundamental lack of, I mean, if you just go back to the, back to the start of the war and you think about um, those early tactics, I mean, all they're doing is exactly what they've always done. I and mean, Vagan's Creek is what we now call Blitzkrieg tactics. Mm. Um, uh, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's a rapid war of manoeuvre. Mm. Um, that's something they've been doing since, you know, beyond Frederick the Great. Mm. And they have to because they're short of resources. So the only way they're going to win is by a kind of lightning strike that often balances their enemy and they surround them and Mm. it's all over. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't work very quickly, history should have told them that it's never going to work. It's kind of all or nothing in very quick order. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, it unravels pretty swiftly. The Battle of Britain is the first big check. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, the Soviet Union is another one. Mm -hmm. Wasting time... In Greece and Crete. I mean, what is the point of the Crete campaign strategically? I mean, it achieves absolutely nothing, or very, very little. So do you see the Mediterranean campaign as a distraction and the Italian alliance as a liability to Germany? Unquestionably, yeah, because, you know, they're no longer fighting on two fronts. They're against Britain and in the West. They're also fighting on the southern front as well as preparing for the biggest clash of arms the world has ever known, which, of course, is Barbarossa, the invasion Mm -hmm. of the Soviet Union. And... You know, let's think about Crete, for example, which is always seen as sort of one-way traffic, you know, great failing of the British and all the rest of it, which it was. Mm-hmm. You know, it should never have been lost. Mm-hmm. But why are the Germans undertaking it in the first place? I mean, it's absolute insanity. You know, using the, those fashion the paratroopers, mm-hmm. you know, they're the, the, the most incentivized, mm-hmm. most up-for-it troops. Mm-hmm. They're absolutely slaughtered. But more importantly, they slaughter, you know, they lose some 250 of their transport planes, which are really in short supply. Mm-hmm. And boy, are they going to need them in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And if the strategic benefit of capturing the airfields on Crete is sort of neutralised you know, literally just over a month later when the Allies capture key airfields in Syria, mm-hmm. which is sort of equidistant. Sure. You mm-hmm. know, but Alexandria is equidistant from Syria and from mm-hmm. Crete. So, you know, you know, which Muppet kind of thought that was a good <laughs> idea? <laughs> but talking of bad ideas and bad decisions, um, the Hitler's declaration of war on the United States a few days after Pearl Harbor must score very highly as the most bizarre grand strategic decision made by anybody during the Second World War. Yeah, but isn't it interesting, though, the reaction to Hitler is almost exactly the same as the reaction of Churchill. Ah, great, it's all Mm. going to be okay then. Mm. Mm. And all this does is just belie his total unsuitability for the job he's given himself, which is commanding all Mm. German armed forces. I mean, 
What do you think motivated him? What, what, I mean, you, you kind of... I think it's a total it. misreading of the, of the strategic situation. Mm. I mean, his geopolitical understanding was absolutely woeful. And this mm. is because he's a very small-minded man. Mm. His worldview is incredibly narrow. It's kind of my way or the highway on absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. He views everybody, whether his be friends or enemies, through the same prison of his own narrow worldview. Mm. And he can't get inside the head of anybody else. Mm. So... He, you know, he hasn't travelled. Um, he doesn't read any languages. He's not really interested in global affairs, apart from running the show. Mm. You know, he's utterly inept. Mm. And do you think there's a there's what does come across effectively the difference in mindset and attitude between the Western Allied leaders, who the Church and Roosevelt and the kind of personal relationship they get on, mm. uh, their staffs tend to get on most of the time. They do have differences, but they work together closely. Yep. Um, well, as you know, I'm, I, you know, I think Anglophobia in Americans has been massively overplayed. Mm, mm. And I, I, whereas, in comparison with the, the Germans and the Italians, and even with the Japanese, they don't really get on. They spend no. most of the time despising each yep. other and issuing dictates which they ignore. Um, and for the Germans, they, they just see the Italians as complete liability. They don't really, in the end, get much out of the Japanese alliance. They initially think they might. It's just totally dysfunctional. That's what comes out. Um, the inability of the Axis powers to put together grand strategy. Absolutely, but again, it all comes down to the top. Mm. You know, there is... The people running the show, the people who are really making decisions on German strategy are people who have no understanding of diplomacy, Mm. who have no geopolitical understanding in its broadest sense whatsoever. Mm. And, you know, they're the wrong people to be leading Mm. Germany into, into, Mm. you know... We get one more campaign after another. I mean, it's very interesting how, you know, criticism against British historians is that all we ever are is obsessed with the with Battle of Alamein and, and North Africa and the Mediterranean, and it was just a sideshow. You know, my research into this just leads me to think that the person who's really obsessed about the Mediterranean is Hitler himself. I mean, he just refers to it all the time. The, the man, he reinforces the Tunisia, for example. He's just extraordinary. And he's absolutely paranoid about the soft underbelly of Europe. You know, ironically always used against Churchill, but actually he was quite right. You know, what's the soft underbelly at the time? And the, 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 as you say about Tunisia with the... Uh, the troops they pump in and the, particularly air resources they put in just before the final collapse in North Africa, the losses are equivalent to the same Stalingrad. So, I mean, in terms of the... In terms of material, it's yeah, greater. It's, it's just a huge calamity for, yeah. for, um, for the Axis powers which come across. Well, I mean, if you... If you, you know, there is a... People, I think, quite often confuse um, boots on the ground with strategic importance and the two are not necessarily mutually compatible at all. Um, and so there is this, this tendency to think of the Eastern Front as being the campaign mm. because it's so soldier-heavy, it's so mm. number-heavy. But, you know, there is, you know, as you well know, I mean, you know, you wouldn't, uh, an American would not say that Guadalcanal was not a highly important battle. And yet the number of troops, because of the size of Guadalcanal mm-hmm. and the location of the rest of it, it was actually quite small. Mm-hmm. Battle of Britain, no one would deny that was a game-changer, but actually the number of pilots involved and air crew and all the rest of it was tiny, really, mm-hmm. compared to what was to come. Mm-hmm. You can only put into your battle what there is room to place. Yeah. Uh, what is really interesting about the Mediterranean in the summer of 1943, for example, is that the Luftwaffe loses something like 700 aircraft between June and, I think, September 1943 mm-hmm. on the Eastern Front, mm-hmm. and they lose something like 3,450. 
and in the Mediterranean. And in yeah. terms of the, the demands on economies, of course, air power is much more resource intensive. Of course. 30, 40, sometimes at various stages of the war, maybe higher figures of the uh, percentage of German effort yeah. is devoted to air resources, to building tanks and guns and yeah. things. It's much smaller in terms of the economic yes. output. Exactly. So, you know, you, you simply cannot say that, you know, the Mediterranean is, is a sideshow. I mean, it just absolutely isn't at all. Mm. And, you know, even 50 divisions worth of mm. German troops as it becomes once Italy's out of the war. Mm. Which of course is volume three, I'm not <laughs> yet. Um, but you know, jumping the gun. But but mm. but you know, it is not a sideshow. You know, it, it strategic importance is strategic importance. It's got nothing to do with the resources you pay, pay into it. It's it's what the outcome is and the importance of the outcome. Yes, and as you, as you say, the the, um, the benefits to the Allies when the uh, Italy eventually goes and drops out of the war is that the Germans then have to deploy large numbers of troops into the Balkans to hold yep. it down, which of course the Italians previously yep. been doing. Yep. So again, it's an extra a drain on resources. I mean, I would definitely argue that that you know, in terms of the war in the West, and and you know, Britain remains Germany's number one enemy right up until the middle of the war, well, until America comes in. Mm. Um, it's the Battle of the Atlantic, mm. and people always. Tend to view. I mean, one of the beauties of doing, um, or, or one of the one of the privileges of doing a, a big narrative sweep like the one I'm undertaking, is that you can show how everything works together. There's mm. been a tendency to do a book on the Battle of the yes. Atlantic, or write a chapter, you know, in a big big sweep on the Second World War. You do a chapter or uh, here and there on the Battle of the Atlantic. What I was really keen to do was try and fold everything all in together. Mm. So you, one minute you're in the Atlantic, the next minute you're in North Africa, the next minute you're in, you know, mm. outside Moscow, mm. or whatever it might be. And, and you, you, you show how all things kind of fit together and how one campaign and one theatre is affecting another, which they all do, of course. Yes. And the Battle of the Atlantic is, you know, if you want to defeat Britain, you have to cut off her access to global resources. Mm. It's as simple as that. Mm. And Germany never puts that much emphasis onto it. You know, focuses on the on, on attacking Britain where Britain is strongest, mm. not where she's weakest. Mm. Why do you think... I mean, I entirely agree. And I think um, in the first two books, you, you capture the element that the Battle of the Atlantic is effective. The Germans have already blown it by the spring of 1941. If they ever had a moment... It was in that first winter of 4041, yeah. of, of the major part of the campaign. But why did it take the Allies until 1943 to win the campaign then and finally put it to bed? Well, because, because the, the challenges of destroying the U-boat force are enormous. Mm. Um, you know, they're not going to give up in a hurry. They keep going. And, and you know, intelligence changes as, as rotors and codes get changed on Enigma machines. Mm. But also just to, to actually completely close the... The, the, the protective gap over mm. the Atlantic, which is a vast place, mm. requires unbelievable technology. And this, again, is where you see, I, I think you can argue that the Allies are focusing their technological know-how mm. in the right areas. Mm. The cavity magnetron, for example, mm. which enables you to have much smaller radar. You no longer mm. need these huge, great lattice mm. sort of discs. You sure. can have something much smaller which can fit on a, on a, um, on a Wellington or mm. a very long-range Liberator or on a destroyer or mm. a Corvette. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and these technological advances, the focus is on protecting their overseas resources. And of course, once you've, but that does take time. Sure. But actually, the the advances are unbelievably fast. If you sort of think, you know, from 1940 to 19, May 1943, you know, that's three years. And you think, you know, what wasn't achieved in Afghanistan in 13, for example, mm-hmm. of all that know-how. I mean, it is it is. The development of the Canadian Navy, for example, is unbelievable. I mean, mm. boy, do they punch above their weight. Sure. 
But there are all sorts of sort of vicissitudes and changes and things mm. that are going on that mm. mean that the battle does continue. And of mm. course, what is happening is that the Germans are belatedly recognising that actually U-boats is where it's at. Mm. And so they're producing more. The more U-boats there are, the more you've got to get rid of. Mm. Um, and that is still a challenge mm. for the Allies. Mm. But the outcome of the Battle of the Atlantic is no longer in doubt, I think, after May 1941. No, except the, the, the longer term. And I entirely agree about the, the technological aspects of it with the RF Coastal Command and so, for example, that you, you mentioned in the, in the book and the developments they make up until the end of 1941. I think Coastal Command sinks one U-boat. Yep. And from 42 to 43, 44, they're accounting about 30, 40% of German U-boats destroyed yep. at various stages. And so, that's because, you know, they, they work out things that, that you know, they have... Um, Lamps on the on the plane, so they can actually operate at night. You know, most U boats go from A to B. U boats are not proper submarines; they're submersibles, most of them. Uh, and so, most of their travelling is from A to B is on the surface. That's where they're their fastest. And of course, it's best to do it at night because that's hardest to see. Suddenly, you've got very long range um, coastal command aircraft, and of course, um, um, planes from the United States as well and Canada are now operating with lights. And with onboard radar. Mm. And suddenly they can get these guys. Mm -hmm. And so there is nowhere where the U-boats are safe. But Mm. that does take time to get to that position where where every part of the Atlantic is covered. Mm. I think the the disparity in kind of the way the two sides fight the war can be shown. The the loss rate of U-boats goes through the roof in the middle part of the war onwards from late 42, 43 in particular. I think the, the death rate of German submarine crews is like 75, 80%. Yeah, 75-80%. I mean, it's just unbelievable, yeah. isn't it? Whereas overall allied shipping in the war is 0.4%. Mm. So, 1.4% in the mm. Battle of the Atlantic. I mean, mm. no, something like 84% of all convoys get everyone unscathed. Mm. Just as narratively, we tend to focus on the ones that don't. Mm. So it seems like this sort of hellish carnage. Now, it is a hellish carnage, and you know, no one wants to be on a kind of sort of on a, on a merchant ship in the middle of the Atlantic when it's blown up. I mean, that's a really bad end. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have to kind of mm. step back from that mm. and look at it dispassionately and say, mm. actually, mm. perhaps it wasn't quite as bad as everyone thought it was. How important do you think um, think of what grows out of the Second World War? Because we we have this perception that the special relationships all wheeled out between Britain and America. It's just a, a given and a constant. But that you could argue the Second World War. 1941 onwards is where it really starts to crystallise and come together. Mm. And that prior to that point, there hadn't been that kind of relationship in the same kind of way. No, um, well, Britain was the old enemy, wasn't yeah, it? Sort exactly. Of line of Bunker Hill and all the rest mm-hmm. of it. Um, so, absolutely, yeah. And I, actually, I think I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of American historians in the last 30, 30, 40 years have been sort of, you know, they have displayed a certain amount mm. of anglophobia. Mm. And I think that's because, you know, they've always been interested in their history and they've grown up with the American Revolution and mm. 1776 and all that. And they're predisposed mm. to kind of sort of stick the knife in a little bit. Yes. And I, 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 somebody told me that with the, um, on the anniversary of the burning of the White House, or what becomes the White House, yeah. uh, uh, in 2014, uh, the British Embassy in America sent um, to, to the White House a cake with flames and things coming out of it for the White House. The Americans didn't quite see the funny side of it in the way that the Brits did. Um, <laughs> so th- there's quite a lot to get over. And yeah. really, I think, from the, you, see, you show the, the Roosevelt and Churchill and their staffs coming together and working together with combined staffs and so on in a way that no other power's really done until that point. That's kind of the point at which the, um, the relationship between Britain and America grows and continues to ups and downs. Well, the, the, the truth of the matter is, is, is that America um, has been isolationist and has, and traditionally so, and even though it plays its part in the First World War and the very end, you know, it has always in its history been isolationist, really. And, um, you know, look after themselves first. And that's a you know, 
entirely understandable um, strategy. Suddenly, in the in the Second World War, they're becoming a global superpower that we all know them to be now, mm. and that's when they emerge into that position, in that position of taking over from Britain as as a kind of, sort of preeminent kind of international power and global mm. policeman and all the rest of it. Mm. Now, at the time of the war, there is such a, a compulsion from the senior leadership to all get on and and mm. you know forge friendships, forge relationships, work for common cause and all the rest of it. And that's driven absolutely from the very top, Churchill and Roosevelt. But also down, you know, you know um, Eisenhower and people like that have a, and Beadle Smith and Brooke and all these people have a huge, played a huge part in this as well. It's, it's a, a marshal, of course. You know, it's a, and so that's why at the end of the war you've got all, you know, in the second half of the war you've got this enormous levels of cooperation, which is why I never really understand those historians that kind of constantly bang on about how much, how many arguments there were. Mm. I mean, I really don't think there were at all. Post-war, mm. Britain is sort of left behind a little bit as America continues its upward sure. germ- journey. And I think the Second World War, yes, we were side by side in that big global moral mm. crusade. Um, but I think what compels it now is more, you know, shared language and mm. all that sort of stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. I think the Second World War plays a part. Mm. I think, but, I think as time progresses, I think yeah. it's 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 weakened. I, I was intrigued by that comment at the end of the the, the BBC uh, the, the series, um, the World at War. The, the we asked Stephen Ambrose, I said, "What did Britain get out of the Second World War?" And he said, "Well, not very much." But it's not entirely true. There's a bit we more to it. Jet well, well um, and I think there is a perception that at the this, this marks a point with the transition from Britain to the United States, but it's not as clear cut. At the time, I think it's anything with hindsight. No. And in the immediate post-war years, Britain is still perceived as a kind of major global player. Mm. And it and takes a, indeed, and it takes a, a decade or two for it to be clear that Britain no longer is. Yeah, I think, I, and I think that's where a lot of the, 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 the sort of what I call the declinist view of the Second mm. World War has come from. It's come mm. from people who've been, you know, the historians who've been young men in the 1960s when mm. Britain is quite clearly at the end mm. of the empire, mm. um, decline of Britain as a great power, mm. three day weeks of the 1970s, and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, you know, that's where that comes from, mm. and from the fact that the Germans are the only people that fought the Russians. Well, indeed, yeah. and you know, huge surveys done post-war, mm. and of course, you know, the German senior commanders who were interviewed about that obviously going to big themselves up a bit, mm. whilst at the same time being nicely deferential to their American captors. I mean, that mm. all, that's all just human mm. nature. Mm. But I think that's where a lot of this last fifty years of narrative has come mm. from. Mm. One thing that comes out in particular is the inefficiency and at times the kind of making up as you go along attitude of the German military, which mm. I think you, you, you capture. Yet the perception is, in lots of pop history and coffee table books and things, is that the German military was superb, you know, the yeah. kind of great technocrats and so on. Why? Where does that come from? Well, I, again, I think it is largely from the, from the Cold War. I think it's from this, 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 this notion that the Germans are the only people that fought the Red Army. Mm. And, you know, post-1945, that's a new enemy, and we want to learn how you go about... Mm smashing these incredibly boot-heavy mm. hordes mm-hmm. with their kind of multiple rocket launchers and all the rest of it. And Better them. uniforms with uh, kind of sexy patterns and things. And all that sort of stuff, <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, and the, and the, and the Waffen-SS um, camouflage patterns and all the rest of it. Mm. So I think that's where it comes from, primarily. Um, but also laced through with certainly from British historians, sort of beating themselves up about the fact that Britain is in decline and therefore mm. how can we ever... You know, Americans, you know, by the 1970s, simply cannot believe that Britain could ever have been this great power. I mean, mm. look at them now, you know, all this kind of stuff. So I think, I think that's where it comes from. But, but it doesn't... 
hold up to any close scrutiny. And I think one of the problems is that by focusing on the strategic level and the tactical level, mm. you don't put any analysis into mm. that medium sure. operational level, mm. which is just then becomes lost knowledge. Mm. And where you do need to fall onto the operational level, you just fall back onto assumed mm. knowledge, mm. which has become a sort of truth, but actually isn't. Mm. And, and, you know, the training is a kind of... I suddenly started looking into this training. Everyone's sort of going on about how well the Germans are trained. So you think, well, okay, fine. Let's have a look at that. Mm-hmm. So I went to some detail, did a lot of research into how Germans are trained. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, you realise that an American infantryman, a British infantryman and a German infantry, they're all trained pretty much the same way. Mm-hmm. There's only so many ways you can skin a cat. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, what are you going to do when you're training as an infantryman? You're going to do rifle shooting, you're going to strip machine guns, you're going to do route marches, you're going to do map reading, you're mm-hmm. going to learn to lay the land, mm-hmm. how to patrol. Mm-hmm. It's all sort of the same. And if you look at the training pamphlets, mm. what is astonishing is how similar they are. The only difference is that in the back of a German one, there's a huge section on horses, which, of course, you don't have on the mechanised British and American one. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And um, I, I mean, there's a lot to be said that it's not just about the, the manner of the technical training and so on. It's a level of experience. Of course. get a huge lead in the first year or two of the war ahead of the British and obviously the Americans. Except that that class is, is frittered away. Yes. Massively. Yeah. And they, they play a role in kind of developing an NCO class and so on which help stitch uh, inexperienced German soldiers into more effective units mm. at a kind of small level in periods of time because the experience they've had and the experience of battle is all something that troops refer to that you don't get from training, no matter how good it is, either German, British or American. No, and you simply can't do all arms training in the middle of a war because there's just no opportunity to do it. You know, all the the, tanks and guns and stuff, they're all needed at the front. Mm -hmm. So there is very little opportunity Mm -hmm. for that. But, 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 you know, I I would say, I mean, mean, one one thing for Volume 3 is going to be the exponential growth of the Americans and how Mm -hmm. quickly they learn. But, I mean, you know, the Battle of Majerda at the end of... Tunisia campaign mm. is one of the most underwritten, undervalued battles mm. ever took place in the Second World War. It's, mm. it, it works perfectly, and, it, and it's the absolute perfect all arms harnessing mm. of air power, armor, mm. artillery, infantry, infiltration tactics, mm. a battle plan that just works absolutely perfectly. And of course, you know, to be a famous battle, it's got to last 10 days, it's got to be lots of sort of, you know, <laughs> dodgy moments where, you know, fate hangs in the balance. Sure. You know, if, if it's all over in 24 hours, then the opposition must have been really, really light. No, not at all. The opposition mm. in that final battle were pretty good sure. German mm. troops rather than mm. Italians. Mm-hmm. And it, it's really, really underrated. And mm. it just shows that mm. even by the spring of 1943, British Army has come a huge way in the war. It's grown from nothing to quite a large army and one that understands what its capabilities are and mm. how to harness firepower. Mm. How do you think important was leadership? Uh, in, during this period, because you, you made about Montgomery and so on, but for the British Army in North Africa at that time, they go through this transitional phase mm. between 1941 and 43 from the kind of mess they're in once the Germans turn up and they have to move through a whole string of different commanders and things. How important do you think leadership Well, I, I think leadership is really, really important. And there's, I mean, to my mind, there's absolutely no question that the absolute nadir of the British Army is, I mean, yes, okay, it's in a port, but, but, but mm. that's a sort of colonial police force rather mm. than a proper army in a way. Mm. Um, I think is, is the Gazala battle, which is just absolutely woeful I mean it should never ever have been lost I mean that's almost as bad as Crete mm. and it's it's you know lack of strong leadership you know Rich is completely out of his depth mm. you know he's a brilliant staff officer mm. absolutely hopeless at the front mm. um, lots of bickering commanders mm. I mean it's just an 
absolute mess, mm. and it should never have happened. I mean, the tragedy is there were people out there who just weren't promoted in the right way. I mean, I, I mean, Tuka is probably the greatest army commander we never had, mm. um, and, and would have been a, an amazing choice mm. as army commander in when um, Cunningham was sacked sure. at the end mm. of nineteen forty-two, mm. I mean, forty-one rather. That mm. would have been a punt I would have liked to have seen happen mm. um, and it might have all been over a lot quicker than that. Mm. you know the North African campaign might have been all over a lot, a lot quicker of course the architect of the final battle of Ajerda as well mm. um, you know there is a bit of kind of I mean I don't I suppose the point I'm trying to make really in the book is, is that commanders need to be kind of sort of sifted out and mm. I think there's an awful lot of luck involved I mean, yes. you know, Slim becomes an amazing general, mm. but he isn't the finished article at the beginning of the First Second World War, for example. No, You've got to all. kind of learn, and mm. sometimes you sink, and sometimes you swim, and, and you, you, you have other chances. Other mm. times you don't. Mm. I mean, you know, it might have been very different if O'Connor hadn't been captured, for example. Who Indeed. knows? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, these are imponderables, and sometimes you've got to... You've got to sack a few and mm. try a few and kind of trial and error and all sure. that sort of stuff. And I think that's what's going on in that kind of middle period. Mm. But let's not also forget that, you know, they're stretched. You know, they've got an awful lot of demands Absolutely, at their times. Yeah. You know, Middle East command is huge. Mm. It's got bigger and bigger the more the, the war has progressed. Mm. Demands on it are huge. And it's not entirely unsurprising. And really, in the big scheme of things, the kind of Gazala setback is, is just that. Mm. And uh, Montgomery comes in at just the right time. Yeah, and he is the and right the person in the right place. Well, fits. the combination of him and Alexander. Yes, that's true. Alexander kind of gets written out a little yeah, bit, he doesn't does. he? Uh, it's really unfair. Mm. How, you know, how, it's Orkelet's command, it's Wavell's command, and then it's Montgomery's command. It's like, mm. no, I don't think so. It's, by that token, it should be Alexander's command. Mm. Um, and, and I think Alexander is massively underrated. I'm a big, big admirer of his. Mm. And I think, think he played a, every bit as important a part mm. in, um, in the victory in North Africa as, mm. as uh, Montgomery did. First of all, kind of being that facilitator, sure. that kind of mm. smoother of ruffled feathers, and that kind of bridge between the Middle East and London... Mm. Um, and secondly, as Army Group Commander in Tunisia, which I think he, you know, he he, he commanded brilliantly and, mm. and couldn't really fault it, to be perfectly mm. honest. Mm. And the, the the other character who comes out of starts to emerge from this, of course, is Eisenhower, who is kind of a pivotal figure later in the war and so on. But at that moment, you start to see you don't have to be a battlefield commander to be a great general. Yeah, and I think he really is. I mean, you know, he's, there's obviously lots of shortcomings on Eisenhower, but he's a brilliant diplomat. He absolutely gets that importance of everyone getting on and, and what he does to secure that kind of chain of diplomacy at the highest level, I think he's brilliant. Mm. And he's very good on that kind of bigger picture stuff. Mm. I think, he, I think he, he gets it. He understands his role. And he's again, he's a facilitator. He's a, he's a smoother of ruffles. Uh, and he's absolutely the right man in the, in, the right pl- in the right place. I also think, you know, I think Clark is pretty impressive in mm. those early days and the build-up mm. to the American landings in... Mm. Um, in North Africa, you know, but again, a brilliant planner, mm. you know, underrated as a general, I would say. Mm. But again, more for volume three. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> that was James Holland in conversation with John Buckley. The War in the West, A New History, Volume 2, The Allies Fight Back, 1941 to 43, is out now in the UK and US, published by Bantam Press. And you can read a written version of this interview in issue four of BBC World Histories, which is on sale now. The latest issue also contains articles on the history of Africa, the Spanish flu and lost cities. BBC World Histories is available in all good news agents now and you can find out more information about it on historyextra.com. Meanwhile, the July issue of BBC History magazine has just gone on sale. 
This month's edition includes pieces on the evacuation of Dunkirk, the death of King John, child soldiers through history, and migration to America, among other things. You can get hold of our July issue in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. And just before we go, here's a reminder that tickets for this year's History Weekend events are currently on sale. The events take place in Winchester from the 6th to 8th of October and York from the 24th to 26th of November. And speakers include the likes of Dan Jones, Yanina Ramirez, Roy Hattersley and Alison Weir. You can find out more details and book tickets at historyweekend.com. Well, that's about it for this week, but please do join us next time for more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 